Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. In his new book, How to Be Perfect, Michael Schur writes, Were he around to witness all of this, I think Aristotle would have said, Dude, you super blew this. Then Schur explains that, It helps him to understand philosophy if he imagines the philosophers talking like his friends. Michael Schur has created characters who many of us consider friends with his shows, including The Office, Parks and Recreation, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and The Good Place. He is with us now via Zoom. Michael Sir, welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much. I'm interested why you chose that particular quote to cite from the book. Oh, I have many more. (laughs) I just loved how you managed to remove any bit of intimidation a reader might feel about reading philosophy or reading about ethics and, you know, imagining Aristotle saying, dude, (laughs) well, okay, that helps us with the tone. Yeah, it certainly helped me. I, I, the barrier of entry to something like moral philosophy is so high. I had to read it in order to write The Good Place. And I was intimidated and scared and, and needed a lot of help. And so I really do find it helpful to use these little tricks. Like imagine that Aristotle isn't a, isn't around 2,400 years ago and sitting in some, you know, uh, like lofty perch in Athens, uh, writing the world's greatest tracts of human thought, but rather sitting next to me on my couch, watching a baseball game and yelling at me for something stupid I did. I think that <laughs> if you can play little games like that with these people, if you can get over the fact that they are ancient and wise and wizened and have long gray beards, that it helps you to understand what it is that they're trying to get at, because ultimately they are all talking to us now. They were writing back then, but they're talking to us now, and it helps to imagine them contemporary, I think. Indeed. The subtitle of your book is The Correct Guide to Every Moral Question. Mm -hmm. What sparked your interest in moral philosophy? Well, it wasn't one thing. As a kid, I was extremely concerned with rules. I I always wanted to know what the rules were, and I wanted to make sure I was following them. My oldest memories are of thinking like, oh boy, I was supposed to do this and I didn't do it and I'm in trouble. Or a teacher just told me to do this thing, and so I have to do that right now. And so there was some very deep-seated, baked-in concern for right and wrong that I think is genetic. And then as I grew up and lived an adult life, I found myself occasionally in some very complicated, weird grown-up situations where I had some kind of dispute with someone or there was some kind of complex negotiation, intellectual or emotional or otherwise. And if I blew it, I would feel like I wish I had known before this some theory that it could have helped me make a better decision. And so eventually I just started reading about it because I thought like, well, there's, you know, there's been a bunch of people who are really smart 
over the last several thousand years who spent their lives writing guides for how to do good things or at least better things than the things you were going to do. And if I could learn a little bit about them and understand what they had to say, that it might help me not not run afoul of other people, or it might help me understand what my responsibilities are in these complex situations. And then when I had the idea for The Good Place, I realized that I couldn't actually execute that show properly unless I really knew what I was talking about. And so the, the show was really the final stage in my personal development. And then the book is, I think of as my sort of exit interview from the show. <laughs> it's sort of like I'm debriefing myself and explaining what it is that I learned and trying to relate that to other people. Quite conscientiously, you brought in a professor of philosophy to advise you, both in the writer's room for The Good Place and with this book. What was the role of Todd May? So Todd wrote a book called Death, which is about as, uh, it's more fun to read than the title would suggest, but I would hope so. <laughs> there's actually a, a funny story involving my wife, which was around the time of the show, I was, you know, I was ordering untold numbers of books, then they were showing up at our house in droves. And at one point, I was lying in bed, and I was reading Todd's book, Death, which is is a slim paperback, but it has it's a black cover, and there's a raven on the cover. And I was reading Death and my wife was brushing her teeth and she came in and looked at me lying in bed, reading the book Death. And she said, this show is going to ruin my life, isn't it? Oh. <laughs> and I said, no, 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 it's, don't worry. It's not what you think. Todd has written many excellent books on, on the subject of living a good life and moral philosophy. And that book in particular was one that we found because it deals with the concept of immortality. And we were writing a show that took place in the afterlife where the characters were essentially immortal and I just emailed him and said, I'm a television producer and I am working on this TV show. And would you be interested in having a discussion about your book with the writers? So we had a Zoom with him from South Carolina where he lived. And it was so lovely and he was so magnanimous and generous and great that he became sort of our unofficial emergency philosophy advisor. The joke in the room is that we had a red phone like Reagan calling the Kremlin. <laughs> and if we didn't understand something, we would pick up the phone and call Todd and he would explain it to us. And then when I wanted to write the book, Todd was a sort of natural choice because he and I had gotten to know each other fairly well. And, and I said like, will you kind of spot me? Like I'm in the gym and I'm lifting weights and I'm afraid that this barbell is going to crush my throat. Will you stand next to me as I write this and make sure that this philosophy doesn't crush my throat? <laughs> so yeah, he was he was a, a huge part of the book. And, and it was a relief to know that he was sort of standing next to me and looking over my shoulder to make sure I didn't screw anything up too badly. Okay. When did you fall in love with ethics? Well, it's been a long, slow process, I think, of falling in love with it. You know, I didn't really study it in college. Probably, I would say I didn't fall in love with this subject until the show, because the show, again, required me to be much more well-versed than I was. And as I really dove in and started to put together my own understanding of the, of the history of the subject, that's when I, I feel like the flame was really lit. And I began to, I began to realize the affinity that I have for it, just the, the how much I like it, and also the debates that it stirs up internally and inside me and also with other people about the different theories and what they say and what they mean and which one's better. And it was probably the year leading up to the first season of the show where I would say I really fell in love with it. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with TV producer and writer Michael Schur. His new book is How to Be Perfect, The Correct Answer to Every Moral Question. What are the four questions we can ask ourselves when we encounter any ethical dilemma? So in the introduction of the book, I, I sort of tried to reassure people <laughs> by saying that when you hear the words moral philosophy or ethics, that it can seem really intimidating. But the more that I read about it, I realized that really the questions that these theories are asking are pretty simple. To me, the questions that are being asked here are these. 
what are we doing? Why are we doing it? Is there something we could do that would be better? And why is it better? And when you take the concepts of ethics and moral philosophy out of this kind of lofty, ethereal, kind of uh, high up on a mountain, a guru, a high up on a mountain kind of a world, and you bring it down to earth, and you realize that's really all we're asking here is what am I doing? Why am I doing it? Is there something I could do that's better? Why is it better? It feels more realistic that you can get something out of it, right? It's like, it's no, it's not this PhD level. I have no idea what the hell anybody's talking about kind of a discipline. It's really pretty simple. And so all of the theories that are complicated and tricky and, and densely written, and some of them are thousands of years old, you can rephrase them as just like, they're just trying to tell us what to do. <laughs> that's all it is. <laughs> they're trying to say like, hey, if you're doing something that isn't so great, here's a way you could do something that's better. And I'll explain to you why it's better. In asking the question, what makes a person good? You turn to Aristotle. How does he distinguish between happiness or flourishing and pleasure? So Aristotle believes that the end goal for all of humanity is, is happiness or flourishing, because that's the thing you want to be just to be it. You don't want happiness for any other reason other than it's good to be happy. You like happiness, right? So flourishing for him means exhibiting all of these different qualities, aspects of your character, like kindness and generosity and courage and magnanimity and all these sorts of good things in exactly the right amounts. You need to be courageous, but not too courageous. You need to be generous, but not so generous that you end up giving away everything that you have and living a life of poverty. So it's it's finding the, the, the sort of dead solid middle zone of all of these qualities. And when he talks about happiness or flourishing as the thing that you want, you're tempted to say like, well, that can't be the end because I'm really happy when I eat Oreos and watch TV. So if happiness is the end goal, then I just, should I just eat Oreos and watch TV? Because that seems like, a, <laughs> that doesn't seem like the best possible life. So he made a distinction between happiness and, and pleasure, like hedonistic pleasure. And the way that he made that distinction, and a lot of philosophers do this, is they say, well, look, we're not cows, right? We're not squirrels we're people. And what separates us is our ability to use our brains and use reason and have these really complicated thoughts about the world. And so for Aristotle, happiness or flourishing, his thought was that it's a result of our ability to use our brains, essentially. It's, a, it's, it's not just the kind of pleasure or happiness that a dog can have chasing a stick. It's got to be more complicated than that. And so he developed this big kind of complex system he called, well, we call virtue ethics, which involves not just finding pleasure in the most basic possible way, not just eating Oreos and watching TV, but rather using our sort of like mature and complicated brains to tease out a way to exist in the world, exhibiting all of these very specific characteristics in specific ways. So a lot of philosophers, and it's kind of funny, they spend a whole lot of time talking about why people are great and how amazing it is that we're people. And you know, Kant does the same thing. Kant's whole theory is about using your pure reason, like it's eliminate all of these emotions, these stupid emotions that animals can feel. Those emotions can't factor in to a moral life because if an animal can feel those things, then they can't possibly be a part of what makes for a good human existence. And it's, it's funny to me because a lot of philosophers, while they're talking about how special people are for our ability to use our brains and be geniuses and be smart and have rational thoughts and stuff, they're essentially talking about why they, the philosophers, are so great. You know, like it's, <laughs> it's very much they're very much pointing at themselves and saying, like, be more like me. Like, I'm look how smart I am. Everyone should be this smart. So uh, a lot of time is spent on the part of philosophers explaining, is, in essence, why philosophers are so amazing. I have to skip ahead because you brought up the 18th century German philosopher Immanuel Kant. And I would love to read your description of him. Please. A stern hard ass who crosses his arms disapprovingly when we equivocate, 
a no-nonsense Germanic dad who will look at our moral report card, see five A's and one A minus, and ask, what happened with the A minus? <laughs> so I'm wondering why you made this endearing character of Chidi Adagonye on The Good Place, why you made him a Kantian philosopher. So Kant is, of all of the theories I talk about, Kantian deontology is the most hardcore, I would say. It's the most, he's the most stringent, the most rules and regulations guy. He believed that there is a right and wrong answer in any situation. And the right answer is the one that you arrive at by using only your giant, glowing, amazing brain to figure out a rule or maxim that you could will to be universal, which means you could imagine everyone doing it. And then you act only out of a duty to follow that rule. You don't act for any other reason. It's a very, very strict, stringent theory. What is appealing about it, and the reason we made Chidi a Kantian, is it's the only theory that really promises you that you can get an A on the test, right? It's like, if you, if you do this, if you follow these universal maxims that you have created using your own brain, you win. You win the ethics contest. Like you have, <laughs> you have achieved, you've achieved something perfect. And so Chidi, Chidi's Achilles heel in the show was that he was so concerned with acting correctly in every situation that he essentially paralyzed himself with indecision and thus drove everyone around him crazy. Because if someone said, let's go get a beer, he would have to think like, well, what is the morally best restaurant or <laughs> bar to go to? And what is the best beer? Like which of these 80 beers that they have on tap is the morally best beer to drink because they, the company treats their employees the best and because the carbon footprint of the beer is the smallest, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And as a result, he never did anything. And everyone who was friends with him was driven crazy all the time. So we made him a Kantian because deontology is kind of, the best, not the only philosophy that could cause that kind of paralysis, because any of them could, I, I guess, in theory, but Kant's the only one who's basically saying, promising you that if you follow his rules and regulations, you will get a hundred on the exam. And Chidi just wanted to get a hundred on the exam. So we made him a Kantian. Okay. You give a wonderful example of Steve Carell and Amy Poehler's understanding of their characters on The Office and Parks and Rec that mm -hmm. flows into your explanation of virtue ethics. Would you mm -hmm. share that? Sure. So virtue ethics, like I said, is this process by which you're aiming at this exact middle point of all of these great qualities. Like, you know, Aristotle's thing was like, if you're too courageous, you'll go into a battle and you'll charge over the hill by yourself and take on the entire opposing army alone and then you'll get killed. But if you're not courageous enough, as soon as the battle starts, you'll run away screaming and you'll freak out and you won't help anybody. So the, the answer to how courageous one should be is that is somewhere dead in the middle of zero courage and, and nothing but courage. And your job is to find it. And there's a, a lifelong process of habituation, he calls it, that's required in order to find these things. In other words, it's endless trial and error. So when you care about virtue ethics and you practice virtue ethics and you are constantly kind of checking in with yourself about how well you're doing, how am I being kind enough or too kind? Am I being generous enough or too generous? That what happens is you are this kind of flexible creature who can enter into a new situation and that maybe you've never been in before. And because you have so much information and so much discussion about your own behavior and you've thought about it so much that even if it's a situation you've never encountered before that's really complicated and thorny and has all these different dimensions, you will be more likely to have a good outcome because you have just been thinking about this stuff so much. And then you'll be innovative in the sense that you might create a new path for yourself or come up with a new solution for what to do that you've never thought of before that will lead to a, a good moral outcome. And it really made me think of improvisational comedians because people like Steve Carell, Amy Poehler, Tina Fey, Rachel Dratch, and people who have come out of the world of improv have 
spent so much time, like hour after hour after hour, creating comedy out of thin air, right? They they get on stage, they don't know what's going to happen. They get a, a suggestion from the audience. They take a word from the audience and they create a scene out of it. And the way that you do that, that theory, that long form improv theory that guided the Second City troupe and UCB and a lot of those kind of famous improv organizations, what they focus on is remaining sort of open and calm and aware of the world around you and following the lead and being additive and saying it's the yes and is the is the famous phrase, right? You If you're in an improv scene and someone says like, hi, I'm here for my dentist appointment, you're not supposed to say, this isn't a dentist's office, this is an ice cream shop because then the scene <laughs> comes to a dead halt, right? You're supposed to say, oh, great, yes, come right this way. And then you just become a dentist because that's what your partner is doing. And so that process of creating comedy that way has led people like Steve and Amy and Tina to be a similarly flexible and innovative in the way that they approach comedy. And it really did seem like there was a, a parallel there because they've spent thousands and thousands of hours practicing that habituation that Aristotle talks about. They've done that. They've practiced the art of exploring in a positive and creative way how to make the best scene they can in concert with other people, not alone by themselves, but in, in a group collective effort. And I remember thinking about them on those shows that I worked on, that they were so good and so flexible and so innovative that they became fluent in their characters. That's the way I thought of it. And you could say, so you could put Steve Carell as Michael Scott from The Office in any situation. You could throw it at him on the fly and he would instantly know how to carry himself, what to say, how to be funny, because he was, even though it was a new situation he had never encountered before, he had just practiced so much that he was this kind of flexible and innovative guy. And he would succeed in what he was doing. He would, he would be funny because he was so, he had so many hours under his belt of just thinking about the character and thinking about comedy and understanding the mechanics of it and the ins and outs of it. The other analogy that occurred to me at the time was it's like at the end of the movie, The Matrix, when Neo suddenly can see the code behind the whole world that he's in. Like you see the world from his point of view and he, he sees the world not as a collection of objects, but as like the code that created those objects. And the joke I make, of course, is that, you know, it's not so hard to be good. You just have to understand the world as thoroughly as Neo understands the world at the end of The Matrix and then you'll be fine. <laughs> Writer and television producer Michael Schur will return with more of our conversation in just a moment. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzis. Great to have you along. If you're just tuning in, my guest is the television producer and writer Michael Schur, best known as the Emmy Award-winning creator of The Good Place. His new book is How to Be Perfect, the correct answer to every moral question. Here, Michael Schur explains the thought experiment known as the trolley problem. The trolley problem was invented in 1967 by a British philosopher named Philip Afoot. You've probably 
encountered it at some point in your life. It's very, it's easily the most famous thought experiment in recent philosophical times and might be the most famous one ever. And essentially the basic problem is you're on a trolley, the brakes fail on the tracks ahead of you were five construction workers who were going to get run over. There's a lever on the trolley that if you pull it, it will switch the trolley onto a different track on which there is one person who will get smushed by the trolley and die. And the question simply is, do you do it? And almost everyone, when offered the original conception of the trolley problem, says, of course you do. One is less than five. It's better that one person dies than five people die. The problem with it is, is that if you use that, if you use the numbers as your reasoning, you immediately fall into this trap, which is someone says, okay, if that's your answer, what if you're a doctor and there are five people who need organ transplants? or they're going to die. And then you see a, a guy refilling the soda machines in the hospital. Are you allowed to kill that guy, take out all his organs and then implant them into the five people who are going to die? And everyone goes, of course, you're not allowed to do that. And then the knowing philosophy professor will say, why not? It's the same thing. One person dies, five people live. You've made the same choice. It's the same outcome. Like, why is that not okay? But the first thing is okay. And so the trolley problem was this kind of spark I think that caught fire thanks to the work of people like Judith Jarvis Thompson and Elizabeth Anscombe and a lot of other philosophers who seized on it as a way to get at something that's fundamental about the biggest theories that we talk about in the world of philosophy, utilitarianism, deontology, even virtue ethics, all sorts of things. Because when you start parsing it and you start adding in these other variations, you realize that it might be true that you should pull the lever, but the reason that it's true isn't just because one person dying is better than five people dying. It has a lot to do with your intentions, with something called the doctrine of double effect, which is like, think about like an act of killing someone. You would generally say you shouldn't kill people, but what about self-defense? Well, yeah, right. It's okay to kill in self-defense if you're being attacked. That's a different situation. And you were intending only to save your own life. You weren't intending to kill someone when you killed someone. So there's a difference between killing someone and acting in self-defense. So there's all these millions and millions and millions of variations. And, and philosophers have been talking about this essentially nonstop for 50 years. And it is a fascinating way to get to the bottom of what is both good about some of these theories and also the troubling places that these theories lead if you don't pay really close attention to what they're saying and why they're saying it. I loved reading about Ubuntu. Would you describe that concept? Sure. Ubuntu is is a not strictly speaking, I would say a philosophy. It's a, it's a sort of community ethos that exists in, in a lot of countries in, in Southern Africa. And it's not really codified or written down in the same way that some other philosophies have been. There's no text that you can read. No one invented Ubuntu and then wrote down, here's what you do in order to follow it. It's just been around for a really long time in various countries. It's not, it's not limited to one country. It's not limited to South Africa or Tanzania or any place. And essentially what it says is, we are going to take the concept of self-preservation and self-happiness and put it exactly on the same level as community health and happiness. In other words, there is no difference between a stranger who comes to visit your town for the night and your best friend or father or cousin or sister or anything else in terms of the way that you treat that person. So a lot of Ubuntu is sort of explained through through aphorisms, which obviously are in translation and thus are not completely reliable in, in the way that we talk about them. There's a couple of phrases that I think really get at the heart of what it is. One of them is a person is a person through other people. So it's the concept of like your proof of existence, your actual identity, your place on earth is only given to you through other people and their existence on earth. And that's a very beautiful idea. Another one is, I am because we are, and since we are, I am. So it's the same idea, right? It's like arguably the most famous single utterance in the history of Western philosophy is, I think, therefore, I am, the Rene Descartes cogito ergo sum. And 
that when you contrast that sort of European enlightenment idea of what existence is, it's my own ability to think and reason is proof of my own existence. And contrast that with the idea of I am because we are, meaning the only reason I exist is because we exist. You can see there's this enormous difference. That's an enormous split in terms of the way that we think about ourselves and our role in our communities and, and our societies. And I believe that there's a, no greater division to be found anywhere in philosophy than between that enlightenment European kind of, I think, therefore I am versus I am because we are like that is that's those are the two extreme ends of the spectrum. And when you think about the way in which in the Western world, we often idolize and worship individual achievement and we elevate celebrities and business leaders and, and athletes to like to this incredibly lofty perch, we're celebrating that individual existence in a way that would never happen in Southern Africa if you are an Ubuntu practitioner, because that society, a society who follows that ethos would say like, my goal isn't to elevate myself, it's to elevate my community and the people around me. I'm only happy when they are happy. I feel pain when they feel pain. Like that's a completely other directed attitude to have in the way that you just go about your daily life. So it's a very interesting dichotomy that I think needs to be written about a lot more by people who understand it a lot better than I do. Mm. Please tell us about Thich Nhat Hanh. Oh, the late Thich Nhat Hanh. Yeah. He just passed away. I think he was 95 years old. He was a Buddhist monk who lived in Vietnam who became sort of known mostly for protesting the Vietnam War. He was nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize by Martin Luther King Jr. in 1967, which in terms of items on your resume, I don't know what could possibly be more impressive than, than Martin Luther King Jr. nominated me for a Nobel Prize. Like I, It's remarkable to me that he didn't spend the rest of his life just flying a plane around with a long sign trailing behind it that says I was nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize by Martin Luther King Jr. But he didn't do that. He was simply a guy who believed in Buddhism and in peace and advocated for the end of war and conflict. And he wrote a number of books about Buddhism, which are beautiful and which really helped me understand Buddhism in a way I never did before. And if you watch The Good Place, there is a, a moment in the finale where this is a spoiler. If you haven't, <laughs> if you haven't watched it, skip ahead 30 seconds here. But um, Chidi, the character Chidi is comforting Eleanor and he gives her a Buddhist metaphor for death, which I think is the most beautiful thing I maybe have ever read, which is essentially that you should think of a life of a human being as a wave in the ocean and the water he says, has always been there. It just, for a second, it formed this wave that has a dimension and you can see it and it has a shape and a size and it has qualities that you can look at and understand. And then the wave crashes on the shore and it's gone like the life is when it ends, but the water is still there. The water was always there and it just returned back to the sort of state of being it was before it formed. And that's a metaphor that Thich Nhat Hanh writes about for death in one of his books. And it is just an absolutely beautiful and peaceful image. And we use that image in the show to have Chidi explain to Eleanor why she shouldn't be only sad that there was an impending death in her life. Hmm. You seriously address the question can we separate the things we like from the people who make them? Mm -hmm. um, Thomas Jefferson comes to mind. <laughs> sure. I was trained in music. Richard Wagner, how could someone capable of creating such magnificent music be so despicable personally? Mm -hmm. And deeply personal example for you, it's Woody Allen. Right. What happens and at what point do we separate artists from their work? So this was the most difficult chapter for me to write in the book because it is personal, but also 
because I think it's maybe the question we are asking ourselves the most these days. The fact is that because of the way the world works now, we know more about more people than we ever have. We are hyper aware of things that people said and did that in olden days, and by olden days, I mean 2008, uh, would have never come to light because they the world conspired in many cases, certainly in places like Hollywood, the world conspired to cover up problematic people and their problematic behavior. Now that's not the case anymore. The dam is broken and we're extremely aware every single day of a new person who did or said an offensive thing. And as a result, we are asked as the people who consume their art or music or whatever it is, we're asked to take a stand one way or the other. Do you support this person still or do you not support this person? So that means that every single day we are called to the mat just for being alive and listening to Michael Jackson's music or Eric Clapton's music or looking at Picasso's art or listening to Wagner or watching a movie starring Mel Gibson or whatever it might be. We are now responsible for the things we like in a way we never used to be responsible for them. So I, in my case, you know, Woody Allen was a very early, just absolutely enormous influence on my sense of humor, on wanting to be a writer. I worshipped him. I saw all of his movies. I memorized them in many cases. I watched them over and over and over again. There is no way for me to completely separate what Woody Allen did for me and what he meant to me. I can't just snap my fingers and erase that part of my soul. It's too baked in. It's too intertwined with my own creative soul. And yet Woody Allen has done some things that are deeply troubling. He's been accused of other things that are even more troubling that he denies. So I'm left in this weird zone where I have this person who matters a great deal to me and my, and my development as a comedy writer and as a, just as a writer in general, as an artist, and I kind of find him despicable. So where are we? Where does that leave us? I don't think there's a clear answer here. I think that as I write about in the book, that what we have to do in these situations is draw a line somewhere. We need to draw a line and say this behavior, if someone exhibits this level of behavior, then I can no longer in any way, shape or form support the people who exhibit that behavior. And it's, some, some people are easy, right? It's not difficult to say, Harvey Weinstein, you're out. <laughs> like Harvey Weinstein was, was a monster. He was a demon who caused pain and suffering and anguish to so many people. He ruined lives and careers. He, he was diabolical and, and pathological in his destruction of other people. But there are some people who it's like, well, what about Mel Gibson, right? Mel Gibson has done a lot of objectionable things. He's used virulent anti-Semitic language and he's over and over again, he's been misogynistic in his approach to people. That's not the same as Harvey Weinstein, but it's also not good. And so Basically, you at some point, you just have to draw a line and you have to say, these people I no longer support, but these people, I can find it in my heart if they seem like they are doing a good job of redeeming themselves. I can forgive them for what they've done because nobody's perfect and because humans are deeply flawed and so on and so forth. The problem, of course, is that as soon as you draw that line, someone, a friend of yours or a colleague or a random person on the street will joyfully point out the inconsistencies in your worldview. They'll say, how can you possibly support this athlete who did that thing, but not this athlete who did this thing? Or how can you watch this movie made by this director, but not this movie made by this director? And the process of pointing out how blurry these lines are can lead us, I think, to feeling like, well, it's pointless to even draw them, right? It's like, well, then what's the... Maybe we should just let everybody back in the tent, or maybe I should never watch another movie again. <laughs> and I think that, that those two extremes are the wrong idea. Like, yeah, I think the best we can do is try to draw these lines, use our own sense of right and wrong and our own feeling of integrity in terms of what we think is important in the world. And when new information comes to light, maybe we erase that line and we draw and redraw it somewhere else. That's sort of the best we can do. Writer and television producer Michael Schur, best known as the Emmy Award-winning creator of The Good Place. His new book, How to Be Perfect, 
the correct answer to every moral question, takes on moral philosophy with bright wit and deep insight. Here, he explains why the pandemic has been the perfect illustration for so many of the concepts addressed in his book. I don't know that there's ever been a time when every human being on the planet was experiencing the same thing at the same time. Like even, I mean, think about the most seismic events in the last thousand years, whatever they might be, World War II even. There are nations that sat out World War II and weren't involved, right? There was no nation anywhere that wasn't touched by COVID-19. And so in terms of ethical question wrangling, it's just never been the case that all people on earth, regardless of who they were or where they lived, were facing the same ethical questions all the time at, at the same exact moment. So I believe that when we look back on this, there will be a lot of analyzing and a lot of debriefing and a lot of kind of, you know, let's, let's run all this through the moral calculator and come to try to come to some conclusions about people. But what we have seen in the moment was some pretty stark differences in the way that we think about what we owe to each other, how communities and societies function, what our responsibilities are as individuals, what our collective responsibilities are. We've seen a bright red line painted down the middle of society. And on one side are people who thought, okay, this stinks, but it's pretty clear what I have to do here. I have to wear a mask, which is annoying, but I have to do it. And I have to stay six feet away from people. And if I can afford to continue to pay people who I pay for various services, maybe I should try to do that because people suddenly, everybody's out of work and I should get the vaccine when the vaccine is available because getting the vaccine isn't just about me. It's about me then not passing on this disease to other people. And it's also about me not needing to go to the hospital, which is overrun with patients and the nurses and doctors there have been working essentially nonstop for two years and are burning out and are miserable. Those people were on one side. And on the other side was I have an unfettered right to personal freedom and liberty. And I refuse to yield even one tiny inch in order to better the world I live in. My unfettered freedom is the most important thing and the only thing that matters. And please read this Ayn Rand book and then you'll agree with me. So, <laughs> so we always sort of knew, I think at least in America, we knew that there was a dichotomy there. We understood fundamentally with the way that the political world has striated and the way that some other societal battles have been waged. We just never had one thing that shined this black light on the entire country at the same time and revealed in shocking resolution how stark that divide really was. So it's a very complicated situation, but it also put into very high relief what the divide is in the ways that we think about our roles in the country in which we live. Indeed. Yesterday, I watched the final episode of The Good Place again. Michael, it left me so weepy. I mean, <laughs> having read this book, everything and, and the cavalcade of people passing through just had heightened meaning. And I was particularly touched by Eleanor wanting to take Chidi to Athens and to Paris mm. and to visit the places where the philosophers he admired lived and breathed. I was also struck by the fact that Ted Danson's character is named Michael. <laughs> Would you unpack that? Yes, I named Ted's character Michael, and that led to a lot of a lot of discussion on the internet about how in a, in some weird way he was a proxy for me because he was sort of a in a way he was like a showrunner who was inventing a tv show and getting all these people to play different roles and kind of pulling the strings behind the scenes and i named him michael because on my 10th anniversary my wife and i went to paris and we took a tour of notre dame obviously before the tragic fire and on the cathedral at Notre Dame, there is a stone relief above the main entrance that is Archangel Michael weighing the souls of people and determining whether they're going to heaven or hell. I was writing the pilot at the time and I thought like, oh, that's perfect. Like that Michael 
that should be the name of the character because he is this guy who who is playing this role kind of of this determiner in some weird way of like are people in heaven or hell obviously i was looking forward to the kind of big twist that happens again spoiler alert sorry at the end of the first season but i thought it would be a little wink to the idea if you know anything about catholic theology that that michael plays that role and so I was like, oh, he should be named Michael. And then everybody said, oh, you named it after yourself. And I said, no, I didn't. I I promise I didn't. I named it because I went to Paris and saw this thing. And after a while, I started thinking like, maybe I did name it after myself. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe they're right. Like I I remember taking literature classes in college and hearing the phrase that the author's intent is irrelevant when you're analyzing literature. That was a big wave of critical theory when I was, that was in vogue when I was in college. And so I was like, well, maybe my intention didn't matter here. Maybe what is true at some deep level, some deep psychological level that I can't even access. Maybe I did want to name him after myself because he was playing in some weird way, the same role in his world that I play in my world, which is inventing characters and moving them around the chessboard and having them say different things. So I don't know. I, I'll, I'll leave that to critical theorists to, to determine. Or you just want to be the architect of the world as a good place. <laughs> I maybe, although that's a pretty grandiose idea. Like I hope I didn't if I did it unconsciously, I hope I didn't do it because I'm subtly trying to make myself feel bigger and more important than I really am. <laughs> I think the no fewer than 5 pages that you write about what you consider just lucky breaks yeah. in your life attests to your humility. Oh, thank you. That was the easiest part of the book to write. The hardest part was the chapter on separating the art from the artist. And the easiest part was the section on luck, because I that is a thing I think about constantly. In fact, my speech at my own wedding in the year 2005 was, was about this very topic, was about how I never stopped thinking about the weird links in the chain, random events in my life that kind of conspired to lead me to a certain place. In that case, of course, it was how I met my now wife and how many things had to go right in order for that to happen and how fortunate I feel to have met her and thus how lucky I feel, how the world seems to have conspired in some way to make this possible. And professionally, it's pretty much all I think about. I mean, it's not false modesty. I I believe I'm good at my job and I believe that I work very hard. But it is also certainly true that a number, a large number of incredibly lucky breaks had to go my way to lead me to the point where I have the career I have. And there's a social psychologist named Robert Frank who wrote an entire book on this very topic about how people essentially, he thinks, undervalue the role that luck plays in their lives because we're all invested in the idea that whatever we've achieved is solely due to how amazing and incredible and and brilliant we are. But it's pretty non-controversial to say that even for the greatest geniuses who have ever lived, your Bill Gateses and Elon Musks and, and whoever, that luck is an enormous factor. And he pretty easily, I think, proves it and convincingly proves it. Like in the book, what I talk about is like, think about Michael Jordan. Like it, it seems absurd to say that Michael Jordan was lucky because the whole thing about Michael Jordan is nobody worked harder, nobody had more determination, nobody was more skilled, nobody was stronger or or more intense on the basketball court. And Robert Frank would say, well yeah, he was also 6'6". Like if you he didn't he didn't get to be 6 foot 6 by working really hard at being tall. Right? He just was 6 foot 6 and if you take his exact personality profile and make him 5'9", he never plays in the NBA. So it's there is in addition to all of the stuff he did, there are certain things about his life, including the time he was born, right? If he's born 100 years earlier, well, guess what? Black people don't get to play professional basketball. If he's born in Mongolia instead of America, well, Mongolians don't get scouted by the NBA very often. So if you don't account at some level for the luck that goes into anyone's life, then you have, I think, a false read on how it is exactly that they got to be where they are. And and it's better to have a complete picture. Well, I still think it's incredibly humble. And how endearing a wedding speech. (laughs) I have to tell you one more thing about the final episode of The Good Place that had me laughing 
Maya Rudolph's character, the judge. <laughs> Thank you for her nod to NPR. She's off to listen to a Radio Lab podcast. That's right, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she discovers she was a TV fanatic because uh, she was alone for eternity and bored. And then we thought it would be funny at the very end if she had gotten into podcasts. So, yes, it's one of my favorite jokes in that episode. She says there's a new Radio Lab about how clams learn. How clams listen. Yeah, it's such a perfect distillation of, of Radio Lab in particular, but podcasting in general. <laughs> Well, thank you for that. I'm going to read a sentence from the book to conclude. You write, when we're trying to become better people, we should remember how powerful the simple act of conversation can be to help us navigate these choppy waters. Michael Schur, this conversation has been a joy. And I thank you. It is my pleasure. Thank you for having me on the show. The Emmy Award-winning writer and TV producer, Michael Schur. More information about his new book, How to Be Perfect, The Correct Answer to Every Moral Question, is on our website, wabe.org slash citylight. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear about Outfront Theater's new production of All the Natalie Portmans. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.